And uh, today we want to start the last part of this series, Gospel Change, by going, going to the movies together. Question, do you ever have difficulty choosing what movie to watch when you have to make that selection with another person in your life? Some days I think it takes Chris and I as long to select the movie together as the movie actually lasts. And so a couple of months ago, we're scrolling through Netflix, trying to find something that we both think we would enjoy. And we landed on a movie that we thought we would both really appreciate. And it was this one here. It was called uh, Railway Man. It's uh, Colin Firth and uh, Nicole Kidman. Not a new movie. It's about uh, 10 years old. So we start watching this movie together. And uh, really quickly, we discovered that it was a movie that one of us would enjoy. Lots of torture in this movie. Uh, World War II era, uh, British engineer, military, and uh, he's serving in Thailand. And then when the British forces surrender to the Japanese forces in Thailand, he's thrown into a prisoner of war camp. He is, there's one scene where he is beaten mercilessly with sticks like the size of axe handles. And this is when Chris jumps up and says, I'm going to go read my book. Her tolerance for torture is just not that great. And so off she goes, not relevant to the story, but off she goes. And so there I am watching this movie, uh, almost, uh, starved, almost starved to death. There's a scene in which he is uh, tortured. Uh, he has an, an, an interrogator. Uh, um, Nagasi, and the interrogator kind of facilitates the torture. He's got a hose with water put into his mouth. He feels like he's drowning, and they're just demanding information that he doesn't have. Uh, and the, the war ends. He is released. He comes back home, but he doesn't come back home. Uh, the psychological damage and the emotional damage that he experienced make it almost impossible for him to function once he gets back. Uh, he gets married, uh, Colin Firth, marries Nicole Kidman in the movie, and uh, he has these flashbacks of the war, and the war is it's, it's in the past, but it's not in the past, and he carries the psychological damage with him. And then, partway through the movie, he discovers something. He discovers that the translator that facilitated his torture is still alive and has never been brought to justice. He packs his bags... And he packs a knife to head to Thailand to get even. Where Nagasi, this translator who had facilitated his torture, is a tour guide. And now you go, we got us a revenge movie. <laughs> Somebody's going to get theirs. Travels to Thailand. Very challenging meltdown when they meet each other. Ends up taking the knife and throw it in a river which I didn't find satisfying at all. Uh, he goes back home. The translator ends up writing him a letter of apology. He ends up going back to Thailand with his wife. There's this, I'm so very sorry, I forgive you moment. And what was a good revenge movie turns into a redemption movie. And I have to tell you, there's something in my spirit that was not totally satisfied by that because I kind of wanted the guy to pay. Which is often how these movies go down, by the way. There's these... I will find you and I will burn your life to the ground one piece at a time type endings, which we can find very satisfying. 
I will begin to undermine your investments. I will expose what you did to your family. They'll find out who you really were and what you really did. You will lose their affection. I will annihilate your reputation and your friendships. And then there's this aha moment at the end of the movie where I am the person you messed with 20 years ago, and now you're going to pay. And this is not how this one ends. So let's agree on something at the very beginning of this conversation because today we're going to talk about the connection between the gospel and forgiveness. We just need to agree on something. That is that forgiveness is abnormal. Forgiveness is unnatural. Forgiveness, forgiving someone, is strange. When someone hurts you, the most natural thing in the world is for them to hurt to the same degree that they hurt you or more. That's what's normal. That's what's natural about interactions. And yet, if you attempt to discover what Jesus was about and what he wanted his followers to be about, this thing about forgiving people is just kind of hard to ignore. I mean, it's right there buried in uh, the Lord's Prayer where Jesus said this. He said, when you pray, pray like this, forgive us. Uh, help me. Can we read this together? Ready? Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Now, that's not just something Jesus said. His disciples come to him, and they say, would you please teach us how to pray? And he says, okay, when you pray, pray like this. He coached us to pray. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. It was supposed to be some kind of like forgiveness in and forgiveness out type of thing. Like forgiven people, forgiven people were to be transformed into forgiving people. And this is this is critical today, a critical conversation if you desire to have long-lasting relationships, long-lasting friendships. Because even good-hearted, good-willed people sooner or later will do something insensitive. Even good-hearted people in your life will do something that's hurtful or do something that's harmful. Even good-hearted people. And it breaks something. It breaks something in your marriage. It breaks something in your extended family. It breaks something in your friend group. Or it breaks something in your church. This forgiveness thing is absolutely essential if you desire to repair broken relationships and not simply move from one broken relationship to the next because what we want is relationships that don't break. What we get is this thing called forgiveness which helps us repair once relationships have been broken. So uh, through the course of our conversation today, it's possible that you might think of some deep wound or just a relationship where something was said, something was done, and it broke. And it is possible today that you could feel led, prompted to engage in the weird, strange, abnormal, unusual behavior of letting someone go, of forgiving. May our gracious God be with us. May he soften our hearts as we absorb this teaching today, we just want to look at three different insights into basic forgiveness. Why and what is it and how does it work? So three insights. Insight number one just has to do with uh, what I call the basis for forgiveness. And by the basis of forgiveness, I mean kind of the, the why of forgiveness. And so let's start by looking at some instruction that was given to brand new Christians 
They were living in the city of Ephesus in the Mediterranean world, in and around the city of Ephesus. They were new Christians, and the Apostle Paul, kind of like their spiritual dad, is writing to them, coaching them on the connection between the forgiveness that they receive and the forgiveness that they give. And so in in your Bible, you would find this in Ephesians, the letter to the Ephesians, chapter 4, verse 32, goes like this. Uh, Be kind and compassionate to one another. This was written to church people. Be kind, be compassionate to one another, and then it's forgiving each other just as in Christ, God, what? Last two words, God, what? Forgave you. Here's this forgiveness in, forgiveness out type thing. So uh, uh, just kind of, let me just kind of scribble a little bit here. What, what you're talking about here is the, what I call the vertical dimension of forgiveness, which is God forgiving you, God forgiving me. Because uh, be kind and compassionate to one, another, to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ, because of what Jesus did, God forgave you. So you got vertical forgiveness, and something happens in that, and it propels me to desire to give what I call horizontal forgiveness. So it's kind of like, this is the forgiveness you receive from God. This is the forgiveness you extend to somebody else. And these two are connected. Why should I forgive her? Because somebody forgave me. Why why should I show mercy to him? Because someone showed mercy to me. Why would I want to cancel his debt? Because somebody canceled my debt. And so it's horizontal forgiveness, forgiving someone else based on this uh, vertical forgiveness. But what is required here as a first step is I, I I think you need to go deep into your own forgiveness. I mean, going deep into the vertical that God forgave you. And so I just want to write two words and spend some time talking about each of these a little bit. One is uh, just the word need. Uh, And the other word is the word cost. My incredible need for forgiveness and the incredible cost, the price that Jesus paid for my forgiveness. So need and cost. Because here's the deal. If I minimize my need for personal forgiveness, and if I minimize the price that Jesus paid so that I could be forgiven, then I'll probably minimize the forgiveness that I give out to other people. The reason I mention this is because uh, truths Deep, powerful truths over time have this tendency to become cliche, such as the line, the sentence, the phrase, Jesus died for my sins. Almost like it's a run-on sentence. Jesus died for my sins. Jesus died for my sins. I just want to stop there and go, really? Yeah, Jesus died for my sins. Which ones? All of them? Yeah, 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 I know, but... Jesus died for my sins. Like, which ones? Well, I don't know. I suppose I wasn't always kind. Sometimes I was unkind. Really, to who? What impression did that make on them? What condition did that leave them in your unkindness? Jeff, you're a nice person. Why are you doing this to us? Because I think to really value, really to appreciate the forgiveness that we've received. Here's the deal, three words. We tend to view our sins as few, minor, and easily excused. Jesus died for my sins, but there really weren't that many. 
Jesus died for my sins, but I really wasn't that bad. Jesus died for my sins, but my sins were easily excused. If you only knew the upbringing I had, if you knew what she did first, I did that, yeah, but everybody does that. Few, minor, and easily excused. When I believe that my crimes, the pain that I cause others, few, minor, and easily excused, I don't really think I have entered into the desperate condition that I was in. So it helps every once in a while. Jesus died for my sins. And to go, which ones? You're able to go, uh, you ever use somebody? Kind of string them along, lead them along emotionally to get what you wanted, really no intention of honoring their emotional space. You ever do that? You ever use silence to make somebody pay? No, no, no. I'm not going to tell you what you did. I'm going to make you guess what you did. So I'm just going to get really formal, really quiet, really silent, and, and make, you, make you figure it out. Three words. Few, minor, and excused. These other three words, I just need to begin to see them as many severe and no excuses. The twin crimes of ingratitude and complaint. Ingratitude and complaint. My obsession with the blessings withheld instead of my obsession with the blessings that are bombarding my life every single day. A tsunami of blessings bombarding my life. And I tend to pick out areas where blessings have been withheld. The cousins, the twin crimes of ingratitude and complaint. Uh, lust, rage, envy. The way my temper affected my little kids. The purpose here isn't to get you to shame out. The purpose here is just to go, when God intervened in my story, my need was desperate. My crimes were not just a few, and they were not minor, and I just can't easily, I gotta go, no excuses, no excuses, no excuses. I needed rescue, desperate need. Oh, okay, so Jeff, then Jesus comes and erases your sins. No, our sins are not erased. They're paid for. And that's, that other expression there is just the cost. Desperate need, incredible cost. Now, I'm, I'm going to do something here. I'm going to just read one of the accounts of the crucifixion story. It, it, the reason why it's from Luke's gospel, one of the four uh, biographers that uh, tell us about Jesus' crucifixion. I just want to kind of just read through it and make a couple comments. And the reason I, I want to read the story is because several weeks during this series, I've pulled this slide up right here, which shows the crucifixion, and then just the word, someone took my place. And I, I love that, because it just gives a snapshot of the crucifixion, and then what happened there. Someone took my place. But the problem with that is that it's a snapshot. It's a photo when we need a video. It's a photo when we need a video because the crucifixion of Jesus was a six-hour ordeal. Nine o'clock in the morning till three o'clock in the afternoon. And so I might look at the moment Jesus died for me. 
I think I need from time to time to see him dying for me, if that makes sense, and if I can make that distinction. So let me just read Luke's account of the crucifixion. When they came to the place called the skull, they crucified him there along with two criminals. One of the criminals was on his right and one of the criminals on his left. Now, the idea here is that that day, if you're walking by, Jesus looks like just one of the crooks. One of the crooks. It's like three guys in a row getting executed for what they've done. And so Jesus is literally just up there with other wrongdoers. Jesus said, Father, forgive them. They do not know what they're doing. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And meanwhile, a dice game breaks out not far from the cross. And they divided up his clothes by casting lots. What soldier is going to get the sandals? What soldier is going to get the cloak? What soldier is going to get the tunic? Jesus is naked and exposed, and he's taunted. An incredible amount of ink in the crucifixion story goes to the emotional harassment at the crucifixion. The people stood watching, and the rulers, these are the religious rulers, sneered at him. They said, he saved others. Let him save himself if he's God's Messiah, the chosen one. So he's getting taunted as he's struggling for breath. Not only the religious leaders, the soldiers get in on the action. The soldiers also came up and mocked him. If you're the king of the Jews, let's see you save yourself. And not only the rulers, religious rulers and the soldiers, one of the other guys getting executed gets in on the action. One of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at him. Aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and get us down from here too. The other crook says, don't you fear God? You're under the same sentence. We're punished justly. We are getting what our deeds deserve. But this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus answered him, truly I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. The power here is that Jesus is struggling for breath and blood loss, and he's still trying to get somebody home. Happens to be the guy next to him, and then we have Jesus' death. Jesus called out in a loud voice, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. When he had said this, he breathed his last, and he's gone. It's six hours. Well, it takes minutes to read. What I'm attempting to say here is that my desperate need was met at incredible cost. When Jesus is paying off debts that were mine and not his, he paid for them with himself. Now, when I merge these two together and go, I am a person who was in deep need of rescue, and Jesus paid at an incredible cost to cover my wrongs. It's at that point then I go, I must be deeply, deeply loved. This is the starting point for forgiving somebody else. The starting point for forgiving someone who wounds you, who says something unthoughtful, unkind, or maybe untrue, isn't trying to forgive them. The starting point is going deep into your own forgiveness. I must be really, really 
really loved. And if our heart softens to that, there's a moment that we go, is there, is there anything that you want from me? And our Lord would say, yes, as a matter of fact, there is. There's a number of things, but one of them is, I want you to forgive other people like you've been forgiven. Forgiveness in, forgiveness out. You don't understand. What they did was inexcusable. What I did was inexcusable. God forgiving me my inexcusable crimes may empower and motivate me to forgive other people their inexcusable crimes. So let's turn, let's turn if we can, to this um, insight number two. So insight number one is just the, 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 the why of forgiveness, and it's the forgiveness in, forgiveness out. The, number two has to do more with the what of forgiveness. So this is called the practice, the practice of forgiveness. And what I want to do here is I want to return to the Lord's Prayer snippet. Uh, give us this day our daily bread, and then forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Now, the most common word for forgiveness in your Bible means the canceling of somebody's debt. It was a business term. It was a commercial term. It was a money term. Somebody owes you, and you cancel the debt of somebody that owes you. So forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors is, I think, a great way to think about forgiveness and language and imagery to decide to forgive somebody. Now, make no mistake about it. When somebody hurts you or harms you, reflexively, it's automatic, something that's going to occur in your spirit are these words, you owe me. You owe me, and I'm collecting. You owe me, and you're going to pay. You've taken something. You've taken my tranquility. You've taken property that was mine. You took my reputation. You cost me sleep. And I'm telling you, you don't have to decide to do this. It's like right there. Like you owe me. You owe me and you're going to pay. And I'm going to make you, and I'm going to help you pay. I'm going to help you pay by bringing this up again and again and again and again and again. Because you need to pay. You need to pay. You owe me, and you need to pay. I can make someone pay by retreating from their life and just kind of shutting down and making it very, very clear we don't have a friendship anymore. We need to pay. I, I can make them pay by getting demanding and controlling. If you did that, it is my right to be demanding and controlling in this relationship. You're going to pay. You owe me, and you're going to pay. We can make them pay by ghosting them, ignoring them, or canceling them. You're going to pay. But the idea behind you're going to pay is my happiness depends on your unhappiness. Only when you are sufficiently unhappy can I once again be happy. You're going to pay. You owe me and you're going to pay. If forgiveness is the canceling of debt, then to forgive someone who has hurt you or harmed you, to forgive someone means to say in one way or and other, I'm not going to make you pay. This, my friends, is a decision. A decision of the heart. And by the way, decide this before you feel anything warm toward this person. Forgive now, feel later. Forgive first, feel later. It's a decision of the heart that goes, I'm not going to make you pay. I'm not going to make you pay by continually bringing this up to you. I'm not going to make you pay. 
I'm not going to make you pay by bringing this up to our friends group. And when your name comes up, I just need to lean in one more time and let them know what a dirtbag you are. I'm not going to make you pay by bringing this up to them. And I'm not going to make you pay by bringing this up to myself and replaying this tape over and over and over in my mind so that I can keep the wound open and unhealed. I'm not going to make you pay. That's what forgiveness is. I'm not going to make you pay. Question. If you don't make them pay, then who pays? If you don't make them pay, then who pays? The answer? You do. Forgiveness always costs something. And when you forgive someone, I'm not going to make you pay. This might mean that you pay a little bit at a time. You pay every time you don't bring this up when you could. You bring this up when you, you uh, pay a little bit when you engage with them in conversation rather than just retreating and cutting them off. You pay a little bit. You pay a little bit when you are with your friends group and their name comes up and you actually mention a positive quality about them. Instead of recruiting your friends to help you wallow in your self-pity, <laughs> you pay a little bit. You pay a little bit when you refuse to replay the video over and over again in your mind about what they did. What I'm trying to say here is that forgiveness is always costly. Forgiveness costs Jesus something. Forgiveness will cost us something. If we come to that point and it is a decision where we go, okay, I'm not going to make them pay. What that means is that you pay. This opens up a question that's one of the most frequently asked questions about forgiveness. It's an important question. It's a vital question. And the question is this. Can I forgive them if they're not sorry? Should I forgive them if they don't apologize? Should I forgive them if they show, like, absolutely no remorse? Short answer is, yes, you can forgive them but it's really hard to fully reconcile with somebody who won't own up to what they're doing. So there's kind of a yes and a no. Uh, yes, you can forgive them from your heart because forgiveness only depends on you, but reconciling kind of depends on us. And so you can forgive, but you can't necessarily reconcile. So uh, image number three, uh, insight number three uh, has to do with this, which is the goal of forgiveness. And the goal of forgiveness, optimally, can't always happen, but optimally, the goal of forgiveness is restoring a broken relationship. Optimally, forgiveness is restoring something that's been broken to pieces. So, uh, Matthew chapter 18 in our Bible, uh, Jesus goes on this lengthy set of teachings on forgiveness. And part of a teaching of forgiveness, Matthew 18, verse 15, this is the coaching he gave his disciples when he said, listen, if your brother or sister sins, and the idea is sins against you, harms or damages you, check this out. Go and what? Last four words of the second line. Go and do what? Point out their fault. You go to them and you say, this is what you did and this is how it made me feel. Go to them and point out their fault. But check out the next one. Just between the two of you. You're not going to want to do that. You're going to want to tell your four best friends. Just between, you're going to limit the exposure and you're going to limit the damage. Just between the two of you. And then it says, if they listen to you, you've won them over. The purpose in going is not to win the argument. The purpose in going is to win the relationship. Purpose in going is not to make them pay. Purpose in going is to try to restore something that's been broken. 
if your brother or sister sins against you, go to you as the wounded party, you make the initiative, you go to them and you say, something broken and we need to talk just between the two of you. And if they respond and go, man, I am so sorry, I did do that and I can't believe he says, you, 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 you've, like, you've just repaired something that's been broken. You've won that person back. So there, there's an image I've used for this in the past. I, I think it's helpful that it has to do with this conversation with two people, and the expression I use is just two chairs. It's a two-chair conversation. And it's a something's broken and we need to talk conversation. Can you read that with me? Ready? Something's broken and we need to talk. I shared that information with you, and it was highly sensitive information, and as I was sharing it, I let you know how sensitive and confidential it was. And I've just learned that you told a few other people. I trusted you with the information. I didn't trust them. Something's broken, and we need to talk. You know, I hear from you about every six months, and it's always when your life is imploding. It's like you're drowning, and you need a lifeguard, and that's when I become your best friend. And then nothing. Six or eight months go by. You get into another challenge, and all of a sudden, I'm your best friend again. You never inquire about me and my life, and I don't know that we really have a friendship here. Something's broken, and we need to talk. I don't know if it's true. I need to ask you. I think you may have said something about me that was unkind and perhaps untrue. And I try to just let it go, but it keeps coming to my mind. Something's broken, and we need to talk. This is, in the Jesus community, our Lord seemed to be saying that conversations like this would be routine if you desire long-term relationships. Something's broken, and we need to talk. By the way, you don't have to have one of these conversations every time someone ignores you, every time someone slights you, or every time someone snipes at you. Sometimes people have bad days. And as I'm a tour, Sometimes they'll be able to say, yeah, and I just let it go, and I don't need a conversation. I don't need to have one of these, something's broken, we need to talk, every time somebody does something that, you know, wounds me a, a little bit. It's kind of like, dude, you know, heal up. However, there are times we need to have this. One of those times is when it's not going away, and when you start, you had a friendship, and suddenly you start organizing your traffic patterns so that you don't run into them. If they're at the 9 o'clock service, you're at the 11 o'clock service so that you don't run into them. You might even change churches so you don't run into them. You might be at this church so that you wouldn't run into them. And then you go, I think something's broken here, and apparently just let it go. Apparently that didn't happen because I want to keep it broken, and I want to make it, you know. So if it doesn't go away and you can't just let it go, I think it's time for a look. Something's broken. We need to talk. The second time to have this conversation is if this is not simply something they did, you get the idea that this is something they do. And this is going to jeopardize every friendship that they have. Uh, your volatile anger. I don't know if you know what it's like to be on the other side of that. And I think this will damage every possible close relationship in your life. Something's broken and we need to talk. But you're just not concerned about what they did to you. You're concerned about a way of behaving that's going to jeopardize their future effectiveness and impact in life. 
so those are two times. One is when you just can't let it, you can't seem to let it go. And the other time is when you're jeopardizing, there seem to be jeopardizing something. So, okay, so you go to them and talk to them. Something's broken. Uh, we need to talk. This is what you did. And if they apologize, then you forgive them. No, you forgive them before you go. Forgive them before you call the meeting. Make the decision. I'm not going to make them pay before the meeting happens. Because if you show up to a two-chair meeting and you're on the warpath and you're making them pay in the conversation, they will sniff that out in like two seconds and they will duck and cover. And it, it is just really, really difficult to be open and receptive to your faults when someone is on the warpath. So counsel, wise counsel is... No, 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 no. Forgive them before you go. They're forgiven, but it's not reconciled yet, and it's not restored yet because there's a difference between forgiving someone, which I can do regardless of their attitude, and reconciling or restoring, which often involves both people. Forgiving involves me. Reconciling often involves us. You can sometimes have one without the other. Listen, I, I know how thorny an issue this is. I know how complicated this is. So let me take a couple seconds to drop a couple uh, resources on you. Uh, this book is written like 25 years ago. It was called The Art of Forgiving. It's by Lewis Smedes, pretty thin. One of the things Smedes does, which is very helpful, and I found this book very accessible, is talk about what forgiveness isn't. I Meaning forgiveness is not necessarily trust because it's possible that I forgive you. I just don't trust you with my money or with my kids. Because forgiveness is given. Trust has to be re-earned. Trust is something that's earned. Sometimes when I hear someone go, yeah, I don't think I could ever forgive her. I don't think I forgive him. What they really mean is I don't think I trust her. And I go, okay, there's a difference between forgiveness and trust. There's a difference between forgiveness and reunion. If you are engaged and you find out that the person you're engaged to has been messing around with one of your friends, should you forgive the person? Yes, that doesn't mean you keep the wedding date. There's a difference between forgiving and reunion. They're not necessarily the same. And Smeeds points out there's a difference between forgiveness and restoration of position. Someone's been stealing from your company. Should you forgive them? Absolutely. That doesn't mean they still get to work for you. I thought you forgave me. No, there's a difference between forgiveness and restoration. So just as a little tutorial on working through some of the thornier issues, I, I just, I find Smeed's book, uh, it's just been very helpful to me over the years. Second thing is more current, and it's much more recent. Uh, I'm just a fanboy of this guy by the name of Tim Keller, who's a pastor in New York City. So for those of you like, that don't read, but you like love listening to podcasts and watching YouTube stuff, there is an interview that Tim Keller uh, gave with uh, Susan Stang. And uh, she, it's, it's like an hour long. I've watched it twice. One of the things I like about the interview, his book called Forgive was just about to come out when the interview took place. And so is, in an interview, you get to hear someone's tone and what Tim Keller really goes after is, in culture today, there is a real popular thought that people shouldn't be forgiven, that forgiving people is wrong. I mean, if you forgive an abuser, doesn't that just perpetuate the abuse? 
And so it's like you have forgiveness on one side and accountability on the other, and you have to choose between the two. Keller talks about forgiveness with accountability. It's not fluffy forgiveness. It's strong forgiveness that holds people accountable. And so uh, adabible.info, go to this weekend at adabible.info, and there should be a tab that just goes, interview with Tim Keller. Love for you to invest an hour of your life in wading through some of the current issues related to this challenging issue of forgiveness. But what forgiveness does, optimally forgiveness restores a broken relationship. Something's broken, we need to talk. Optimally there's forgiveness, conversation, restoration. What forgiveness can do is forgiveness can end the flow and cycle of hate. Forgiveness can end the flow and cycle of hate. So we started today by talking about this movie that I was supposed to have been watching with Chris, watched part of it with her, Railway Man, uh, guy goes back to get vengeance, someone that tormented him in World War II in prison camp, and uh, they end up reconciling. Why did they end the movie that way? Why did they end the movie with, uh, I'm so, so, so very sorry, I forgive you, reconciling? Why did they end the movie that way? They ended the movie that way because that's what happened. Eric Lomax and Nagasi were real people. It was real torture in a real POW camp. On the first trip over, they didn't reconcile. Nagasi sends him a letter. Eric reads the letter, and then he decides with his wife to go back to Thailand, and he brings his own letter. There's a scene at the end of the movie where he hands the letter to his former tormentor, and this is part of what the letter reads. The war has been over for many years. I have suffered very much, but I know that you have suffered too, and you have been most courageous and brave in working for reconciliation. While I cannot forget what happened, I can assure you of my total forgiveness. Sometimes the hating has to stop. Sometimes the hating has to stop. Eric Lomax ended up writing a book on the, the torture, on the desperation, on the near starvation, and on the reconciliation. Here's the two men in their senior years with Eric Lomax holding the book that he had written on this. I had no hint in, as I was watching the movie, that this was faith-driven, like there was some Jesus gospel thing behind it. All I'm saying is, for those of us who have had an encounter with the cross of Christ and know his forgiveness, you know, how much more? Particularly, how much more should we forgive quickly, quickly, the minor slights and offenses and scrapes? How much more rapidly should we let go. This requires two things, I believe, to optimally work in the heart of a follower of Christ. These two things are poverty and wealth. They're opposites, and we need to have them both. Poverty is just my desperate condition. My sins were many, they were severe, and I got no excuses. No excuses, no excuses. My sins were many, they were severe, 
no excuses. And simultaneously, I am infinitely loved, infinitely treasured, and infinitely secure. It's a story of poverty and a story of wealth. What do you call that? It's called the gospel. It's coming to believe I was more messed up than I ever dared confess, and I am better loved than I ever dared imagine. It's the gospel. And when we go deep into the gospel story with our old poverty and our newfound wealth, it has the power to transform us one day at a time. And that transformation is called gospel change. It's the capacity to love because we have been so deeply loved, infinitely loved, infinitely treasured, and infinitely secure. Let me ask you to stand here at Cascade and at our other campuses as well. I get to pray for us as we move into our week. Gracious God, for my brothers and sisters, I ask for insight. For those of us who are confused about a good next step, open our eyes to what might be possible. I ask for courage, that we might have the courage to be able to take the steps that we believe you might be calling us to. We ask for your daily grace in our lives as we extend that grace to others. And we ask this in the name of Jesus who came here for us. Amen. We'll see you next week.